Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part one. Join us as we listen to the incredible tale of B-17 gunner Lester Schrenk from surviving a plane crash over Denmark and his year-long POW experience to his poignant journey six decades later back to the crash site. This trip takes an unexpected turn when he not only uncovers parts of his bomber, but also forms a remarkable friendship with Hans Hermann Muller, the German pilot who shot him down. This interview was recorded on October 26, 2022 in Bloomington, Minnesota. It's rolling, and uh, okay, first of all, what's your full name? Lester Schrank. And your birth date is what? November 16th, 1923. Where were you born? A little uh, town by the name of Long Prairie, Minnesota. Okay. How far is that from here? We're in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota right now. It's about 125 miles northwest uh, of here. Okay. I was born on a dairy farm. What was it like growing up there? And, and I hated the farm. I'm, I'm glad I grew up on a farm because I think a person got to know how to do just about anything. Yeah. Do you have uh, brothers and sisters? I had a brother and a sister. Unfortunately, both of them passed away. Okay, and uh, so where were you, I guess, when uh, when World War One started for the United States, anyway? World War One or World War Two? Two. <laughs> Thank you for catching me. <laughs> um, we had just sat down uh, to eat uh, our noon meal, and uh, my we had only we had a radio, of course, by, at that time, and. My mother's face just turned white when she heard the news because she knew that sooner or later we would be, my brother and I would be involved. At that time you were, um, how old were you? I enlisted on my 19th birthday, so I must have been 18. 18 yeah, sounds about right, okay. And on your 19th birthday, yeah, you enlisted. What about your brother? Did he? My brother was drafted uh, about almost a year ahead of me. Okay. And he served in the South Pacific. Okay. 
And uh, so when you enlisted, can you kind of walk me through where you went for training and... Uh, um, I enlisted and uh, inducted at Fort Snelling, Minnesota. They sent me to Kearns, Utah for my basic training. Then they sent me to um, Wichita Falls, Shepherd Field for mechanical training. Then they sent me to um, Florida for my, um, <laughs> now I can't even think what you call it, gunnery training. Yeah. Then to Alexandria Air Force for my flight training. And, and then of course overseas. Now what unit were you in? Uh, 92nd Bomb Group, 327th Bomb Squadron, 8th Air Force. And you were, uh, what, what position on? I was a ball turret gunner. Ball turret gunner, okay. And how many missions did you make? We were shot down on our 10th bombing mission. Now I've seen your documentary that was made in Denmark, right? Uh, uh, part of it was made in Denmark, part of it was made in Heidelberg, uh, Germany. Yeah, and so I know some of this, but I'm, I'm going to ask some of the, the same things that you shared on those. But um, where were you based when you got to Paddington, England? And um, were you with your standard, your usual crew at that point? Yes, um, we, I always flew with the crew. Unfortunately, our bombardier did not, and on that mission he was shot down, so we had a substitute bombardier. Okay. And um, most of your missions were, where were your targets at that time? This was in 44, right? Uh, most of them were in Germany, there were a couple of them in France, and the one we were shot down on was in Denmark. Okay. Can you walk me through the uh, that last mission and from I guess from you know briefing in the morning, getting ready and well, when we were briefed, we were told that we would be going on a nutrition mission to Denmark, and we were elated because. Um, Germany just did not defend some of their other countries that were not Germany as nearly as much as what they uh, defended their home state of uh, Germany. Uh, but then we found out that it was a diversionary raid. Uh, there would only be about, oh, I think it was about 25 or 30 airplanes sent as a decoy. Uh, separate from yours? Well, the, the main the main air force went to the Ruhr to, to bomb the Ruhr Valley, mm -hmm. and we were sent up to Denmark to try to lure the Luftwaffe away from the main targets. I see, I see. But I don't think it worked one bit. <laughs> and uh, so, how far or how long of a flight before you encountered some uh, some trouble? I think uh, the minute we hit the coast of Denmark, we uh, picked up some flack. And uh, later on, we a few fighters, but 
the main Luftwaffe really attacked us after we left the target. Okay. So we were well over the North Sea by that time. And uh, what altitude? Probably. I would judge um, 19, 20,000 feet. That would have been about the usual. So what were you seeing from your position in the ball turret? Um, well, I saw um, a plane just after our right hit and uh, crash into the sea. And I knew right away there were no survivors. And uh, just a few minutes later, I heard a loud, loud explosion in our own airplane. And uh, I looked out and I noticed that the uh, right, uh, I mean, the number four engine was trailing a big plume of fire about three, 30 feet long. Yeah. And then I heard the um, pilot call the navigator and ask him where the nearest land was. And the navigator come back and said, 20 minutes due east. So in other words, we had 20 minutes before we could expect landfall. And um, there was one explosion after another, um, so severe that it would completely blow the flame out, but then it would re-erupt, and then there'd be another explosion. And I don't think any of us ever thought that we'd ever make landfall. But um, 20 minutes was probably 20 minutes uh, was a long time to wait. Yes, um, but. It was also to my advantage because um, I called the pilot and asked permission to leave the turret, which I think saved my life because exiting a turret uh, when, when you're shot down is nearly, nearly impossible. There's so many things that you have to do, and time, of course, is so short. Yeah, yeah. But just as soon as we hit uh, land, there was one final explosion, and the right wingtip blew off. And uh, we um, all bailed out, but unfortunately, I found out later, my pilot was killed because um, he landed on a lake with thin ice, broke through the ice. There were some Danish people that tried to rescue him, but the Germans prevented it, and they let him drown. That's a shame. Yes, it is. He was a very, very nice guy, a friend to everybody. What was his name? William R. Levies from Birmingham, Alabama. Really? Yep. He had just graduated from the University of Birmingham. Wow. He was 23 years old. Hmm. He was, he was the oldest of the crew, where I called him the old man. Oh, and the name of your plane, the nickname of your plane was? Pot, Pot of Gold. It was named after a radio show called Pot of Gold, where they gave away prizes that where the gold part came from. Okay. So, you guys uh, all bailed out once you got over land, um, and how was how was it? Was it easy for you to get out of the plane, or what part of the plane did you? I jumped. I jumped out of the the waste uh, door opening. Okay. And uh, 
the guy had me froze and I gave him a big kick in the rear so he got out of my way and I jumped next. I was I was the second person out. Out of the rear, I don't know about the front because the other half the crew went out of the front of the airplane. Okay. And um, so after you landed, um, were you injured at all? Well, first of all, when I pulled the ripcord, the uh, chute didn't de deploy. And I found out that uh, it had stuck and I ripped, ripped it open and the main sh the drogue chute came out, but that was a little bit scary. Oh, you had to use the reserve? We had no reserve. It's just that the drogue chute had stuck in the uh, covering. Oh, so it didn't deploy at all? It didn't it deploy didn't at all. It open. That's right. And, and kind of throw it out? Yep, yep. I gotcha. Whew, well that's uh, one thing after another. <laughs> well that isn't doing it. <laughs> and, and then, so it did open eventually, you landed. Uh, uh, you landed like a ton of brick because our chutes were very, very small. Uh, much, much, much smaller than the paratroopers use. So you're falling a little fast. Uh, when, when we were in training, they told us that it was the equivalent of jumping off of a two-story building. And I don't think they exaggerated that one bit. Right. And um, were you injured on the landing at all? Just um, sore muscles and everything for the next couple of days. Um, none of us broke any bones, but it was quite common for people to break uh, bones when they hit. Yeah. Were you captured right away? Or? They had a semicircle around me even before I touched the ground. Wow. So I had absolutely no chance of doing anything. So what did they do then? Grabbed my arms and threw me in the back of a car and took me to their headquarters. And they gathered the other crewmen together other than the pilot? The navigator wasn't captured right away, and he managed to evade capture for about a day or two, but he had nothing to eat. It was winter time, and he finally got disgusted and just gave himself up. So when we were captured, there were eight of us. And uh, where did they take you first? Well. They kept, kept us overnight and then put us on a train. Uh, it was a two-day trip to uh, Dulag Luft, which is a suburb of Frankfurt. Okay. Um, yeah, just kind of walk me through the whole process from there, what, what you experienced um, or can remember it. The first, first place they give from the time you were captured to the time you got to uh, Dulag Luft, you got absolutely not, nothing to eat at all. So you were very much starved. And then they <clears throat> took us to interrogation. Interrogation was dreadful. It was a great big room of uh, all prisoners that had just been captured. And um, you were in that room and they 
you could hear the sounds of beatings, men crying out in pain, uh, sounds of hitting over, being hit with uh, various objects, uh, even uh, gunshots at times. And you were in that room for maybe hours waiting for your turn to be interrogated. Um, when they took somebody in for inter interrogation, that's the last you saw them. They never brought him back. So you had no idea what happened to him. And um, it came from my time for interrogation. I can still see the guy. If, if Hollywood would have picked him, they couldn't have done a better job. The first thing you notice, he only had a stub of arm, right arm. Uh, he carried um, what we call the burp gun, which is kind of the equivalent of a um, submachine gun anyway. Yeah. And uh, then the other thing you notice, he had a great big scar right across, so deep that he was missing one arm. And he would take the rifle gun barrel, put it in your back, and he would prod which way he wanted you to go. He never said a word. He took me to this room where this German officer, and of course I gave him my best salute, and uh, stated my name, rank, and serial number, and the German officer acted like he was my best friend. Oh, here, have a cigarette. Uh, you, must, uh, you, you must be um, thankful to be alive. I noticed you're not hurt too badly. Uh, would you like to have us inform your mother and father that uh, you're alive and well? Is it all perfect English? Perfect English. And of course, to, you know, you certainly wanted your mother and father to know that you were alive. So uh, you, you said, yes, sir, I would. Oh, we do that through the Red Cross. Here, fill out these forms. So you look at the form and the name, rank, and serial number. And then it went on to all kind of military stuff. So I filled out the name, rank, and serial number and handed it back to him. Don't golf! Don't you know? Don't you think that we know that you are flying at a B-17? Write it down. And of course, I get my name, rank, and serial number again. And then he started slapping me and hitting me, and the German guard punching me in the back with the gun barrel. And uh, he, he keep on asking more and more and more questions, which I refused to answer, but I get, and get hold of my name, rank, and serial number. He, by the time he was done, he was just absolutely worked into a, into a lather. And then he finally said, unless you, you write down what we ask you, we're going to send you to the Gestapo. And of course, the, the Gestapo at that time was known for their torture, where they'd uh, take a pliers and pull out your fingernails and uh, take a hammer and hammer one finger at a time and things like that. And I still refused to answer that he said, he put the gun barrel right to my head and he said, unless you answer the next question, you know what will happen. And then I, of course, remembered the, the rifle shots and I was thinking, this is the end. Again, again, gave him my name, rank, and serial number, and then I felt the German guard behind me give me a big coup, 
I flew out the door and I knew the interrogation had ended. But, but was that ever a scary, scary ordeal? And I found out later that if you gave even the least little bit of information, they would have beaten you to a pulp trying to get more information from you. Mm. Um, okay, go on. Next. Um, it kept us overnight, and I think that's the first meal, not meal, first thing we got to eat. It was a um, thin slice of bread spread with something, a, a kind of a jelly, and I found out later on that it was a jelly made out of beets. Tasted like heaven because we were so hungry. They had taken our shoes and stockings away from us and they made us march through the snow to the railway station. And the people along the way were jeering at us, uh, throwing objects at us. Uh, one woman, I didn't, I actually didn't see it happen, but uh, I understand it happened a little while after we were away. Uh, another contingent of uh, prisoners of war, one of the people pushed one of the guys right ahead of a steaming, speeding locomotive and he was killed. But to be in a place like that and just have everybody just cursing at you and throwing things at you and spitting at you is another ordeal you'll never forget. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with it? How do you, you deal with it minute, minute by minute? Um, were you in the same, you, well you weren't in the same prison camp where Stalag oh, yeah, no, the whole time, right? No, they sent us to Stalag Luft 6 first. And uh, that was uh, Krug, East Prussia, is where the, where the camp was located. Um, it was a four-day journey from Frankfurt to Stalag Luft 6. And during that time, the only thing we got to eat, they stopped the locomotive and had, um, to me it tasted like, uh, dried peas that had been ground into a powder and they snapped and mixed it with water from the locomotive and that that was the meal we got if you can call it a meal it was, it was a miserable miserable trip was it all walking or no 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 for a four day by rail by rail okay and how long were you do you remember we're at Stalag Lift 6? How long? I, we got there about March the 1st, and um, we were there until about July 1st, when the Russians were nearing the camp. Uh, we could hear gunfire, cannon fire, for uh, several days before they evacuated the camp. And uh, we were hoping the Russians would liberate us, but we had no such luck. They rounded us all up. Did you know that was who it was? Oh, certainly we know who it was. Oh, yes. And uh, so they rounded you up to go? They marched us to a um, railway station, 
and started to load, load us into uh, boxcars. Um, when black boxcar wouldn't hold anymore, they would burn at the people, I mean the prisoners in the doorway, so that they would make more room for a couple more. And when it was absolutely so jammed that they couldn't get any more in, they slammed the door shut. This is the middle of July, and of course you've got no food, no water. And we were in that boxcar until well after dark before it started moving. And uh, the next morning we, we found ourselves in uh, Memel, Lithuania. And they loaded us on board two great big, they had been used for uh, hauling coal. And um, they put us down in the hold. And there again, there were so many, we were crowded so close together, you couldn't even sit down. We, you spent four and a half days standing upright, absolutely nothing to eat. Um, they did lower a, a bucket with water, and I did manage to get a little bit of a drink, but that bucket was the same bucket that they used to lower for us to relieve ourselves in. So, but by that time, of course, you were so desperate for water that you would drink anything. And I managed to get one little tiny sip during that four and a half days. And of course, nothing to eat. I don't know how you make it. Well, the liver is quite strong, you know. And I never did have any idea that I wouldn't make it. I had promised my mother when I enlisted that I would be back. And uh... when we got to our destination, um, they loaded us into boxcars uh, and shackled us in, in twos by by our wrists, and we spent a miserable miserable night on a boxcar going to Salag Lift 4, but it was such a relief not to be in that coal ship any longer. And um, when, when we got there, I can still remember there was a little red-headed captain, German captain, and he said, today is your lucky day. Today, you don't only get one Red Cross parcel, but you get two. And good heavens, two Red Cross parcels. I hadn't even got a full one ever. Anyway, sure enough, they handed out two Red Cross parcels each. Then I heard the German captain say, fix bayonets, and then charge. And they started running us down the road to Salad Luft 4, which was, I think it was um, about five kilometers away running us with doggies and bayonets, being shackled in two. And of course, most of the guys, in fact, just about everybody dropped at least one parcel. I was so desperate, I managed to hang on to both parcels, and I think I was about the only one that did. And um, then they had us lay out in this meadow, and of course, we hadn't had it. We were so desperate for water and food and the German guards 
there was a pump nearby, they would pump water, throw it at us, do everything except give us water. And we waited there for, I think, a half a day. When they took us through what they called the strip search, strip search, where you had to remove all their clothing and everything, and they thoroughly, they were actually looking for a hidden radio, which, which they knew somebody had. But anyway, when I saw the German guard that was going to conduct my search, I just cringed because he was one of the worst guards that we had. Uh, he was the type that would come up and take his rifle butt and stamp it down on your arch, trying to break your arches. Or he would come from behind you and slap you against the air with his open palm, trying to break your eardrums. And um, when, when I confronted him, the first thing he did was grab both my Red Cross fossils, tried to take them away from, from me. Of course, I wouldn't let him. I kept on repeating it. I could speak German. I kept on repeating that there were Red Cross fossils, and therefore they were mine. He took out his pistol, and every time I just tried to keep him from taking him, he would hit me across the head and to the point where I'd sink to the floor. I'd regain my, uh, myself, and uh, the last time I realized that it was no use trying to keep him from taking the parcel because if he would have kept on, I'm sure he would have killed me. So at last, at last I let him take the parcels, and the minute he uh, turned his back to me, I grabbed my belongings and bolted out, out of the door uh, quickly lay down in between some of the guys that were already searched and pretended that was asleep. And I saw him come out, pistol in hand, uh, swearing in German, uh, looking for me. And he, he went back and forth about four or five times, just inches from me and didn't recognize me, so I was safe. Well, and that's how come I've got a lot of the things, a lot of the poems that we had written in uh, Salaglyph 6, I have them to this day as a souvenir. Wow, wow, wow. And how long were you, were you there? Uh, we arrived there about the middle of July, and um, it was uh, the 6th of February when they again evacuated the camp, and they told us to be ready for a uh, two-day walk, which turned out to be 86 days. Mm. And uh, the German death march was horrible. It was just four or five days at a time, you got absolutely nothing to eat. Uh, you slept out in the snow, you had one blanket. I froze both my feet and my hands uh, numerous times, and not to the point of losing fingers or anything, but uh, severe frostbite, uh, which plagued me to this day. I've always got cold feet anytime the weather gets even the least little bit cold. But I think I'm very lucky because uh, that's one of the few things that uh, bother me to this day. Um, for years and years, I was suffering from uh, dysentery, and uh, my stomach was giving me a problem. It took 
the, the medical people forever to find out what was wrong. But during my attacks, they would find that my stomach was actually above my diaphragm. Mm. And, uh, uh, and locked both ways where food couldn't get either way. Uh, they uh, operated on me and uh, put my stomach in a mesh bag and tied it to my backbone. And that's where it is today. And uh, that is mostly taken care of it. It does bother it a little bit once in a while, but never to the point where, where it used to. So I think I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I sure are. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.